Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hello and welcome to the Love Tennis Podcast. A day late for which we apologise, but I assure you that we can blame someone else, in this case Serena Williams, and we shall do so if we try. Uh, my name's James Gray of the I newspaper and inews.co.uk. As always, I'm joined by George Belshaw, the tennis writer, and our resident tennis coach Calvin Betton to talk through all the biggest issues in tennis over the last seven days. Uh, we will, of course, be talking about Serena Williams, who retired just after we recorded last week. As as usual, it seems, with this podcast, Serena's timing is impeccable. Uh, we'll talk about Simona Halep as well, because she picked up a title and moved back into the top ten. Uh, Karenia Booster also winning. Uh, a bit of chat about Carlos Alcaraz. We'll talk Jack Draper and British success in America. Uh, Dan Evans, of course, having a good week as well. Nick Kyrgios beat Daniil Medvedev. Andy Murray lost to Fritz but beat Vavrinka. Naomi Osaka has lost back-to-back matches uh, for the first time since Canada and Cincinnati in 2018. We all know what happened after that. And Iga Shontek lost again three in her last six. Oh, and there's also some news about Novak Djokovic, which we may or may not get to. Who knows? But there is only one place to start after the last 10 days that we've had in tennis, realistically. Uh, you will have all seen by now Serena Williams' love letter to the tennis uh, world in the cover... Uh, it was a cover interview on Vogue magazine, September edition, where she talked about how she's evolving away from tennis. Uh, she's going to focus on expanding her family and her business, uh, Serena Ventures, which has already got an extensive and, and diverse portfolio in every sense of the word. George, what do you think Serena's impact on the game over the last 25 years, which is how long it's been, believe it or not, if you can sum it up in in a brief answer, I mean, what has her impact been? Well, pretty pretty phenomenal, hasn't it? Um, you know, she's obviously won the most Grand Slams of anyone in the Open era. 
remains to be seen if Novak and Rafa go past that. I kind of suspect they might. Um, but she's won, I think I'm right in saying two, not calendar slams, but held all four majors at once, even though it's not been in the same year. I think she's done that twice. Um, she's won everything there is to win in the game. And I think the thing that if you're you're trying to to pinpoint what makes Serena Serena compared to the the other stars of this generation. I mean, she's one of those people who has just transcended the sport so much beyond being a tennis player. You know, she, we've spoken before about kind of the challenges Venus and Serena have had kind of coming up as black athletes, um, you know, the kind of overt uh, and the subtle kind of racism they've faced. Um, not to mention kind of the the inequality faced between the men's and women's games in terms of pay. You know, Serena's been a massive voice for both those movements. Um, and that stretches far, far beyond tennis. Um, you know, it's not all been perfect in Serena's career. I think that's fair to say. There've been some pretty heated moments. There's been some amazing highs, you know, winning the Australian Open while eight weeks pregnant or 12 weeks. Um, you know, there's been a phenomenal array of stories that I, I don't think have really been matched by any, many other athletes throughout their careers. Um, so I think she'll, she'll leave behind a, a really rich tapestry in terms of a story rather than uh, just pure sporting numbers, if you like. So yeah. And she'll be phenomenally missed. Um, I think I, I, I I'd say I've been fairly critical of Serena over the last couple of years in many ways because it's felt like she's not been that committed to the sport and that's like totally understandable in many ways. She's moved into this new chapter of her life around kind of motherhood, etc. But, you know, she's... I found some of the statements a little bit odd from that perspective in being like, it feels like she's being robbed. I don't think she's throwing herself 100% into the tennis and, you know, sometimes we've got this recency bias of frustration where it's like you want the best stars playing all the time and you know, it's feeling fully committed but you know the impact she's had throughout her entire career will will struggle to be matched again in the women's game sorry that wasn't very succinct was it but it was a bit rambly it was succinct by your standards george we'll, we'll take what we can get um it's interesting talking about you said a couple of things there that i i wanted to talk about um, one is her commitment to the game over the last couple of years. I, I was writing something today uh, about Serena for the eye because obviously she's playing Radicani tonight and we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit later on. Uh, and I wanted to sort of try and illustrate the fact that she has played a lot less, you know, in recent years. And I wanted to make sure that it wasn't one of those things, you know, you just believe certain things and then you look them up and you're like, oh, actually, that was just my impression was wrong. Um, you know, she she would regularly, even as late as... 2013 or 2014 played 60 or 70 matches a year and mm. after having and let's be honest she nearly died giving birth to Olympia uh, and I, I don't think you can underestimate the impact that had um, on her physicality but since 2017 I think 31 matches in a year in 2019 is the most that she's played and I I don't know whether that was a lack of commitment to tennis or a lack of ability to do anything like a professional tennis schedule. You know, this year I think she's she'll have played like four or five matches. Last year she played I think seventeen matches. 
it it I I don't know whether that was how much of a choice that was, and we'll never know. I I know what you're saying, but I I I've been fairly reliably informed. A lot has been choice, you know, and I'm not saying it's a right or wrong choice because, as I said, you know, she's kind of in different phases of her life. But you know, it's pretty clear to see when you watch her now that she's not been in that kind of regular training that you'd expect from a top top level athlete. And you know, fair enough. She's done, as she said in her her letter, you know, she won't look back being like, well, God, I wish I'd won one more slam. 23 yeah. majors is pretty bloody remarkable uh, by anyone's standards. Yeah. And in the end, probably having two pulmonary embolisms in the space of like a week might, might just like give you a sense of perspective that you can't really replicate. Yeah. And, and you know, it, people's lives change, don't they? I mean, you know, she's famously talked, talked about how she's, I think she says somewhere in it that her husband says she's almost too hands-on with her daughter. But, you know, it's it's kind of hard, quite hard for us to sit here. I don't think any of us have kids, do we? Or none, none we're aware of. But Oh, you know, George, don't is... say that. It's such a... It's such like a Boris 19... Johnson line. It's such like a 1980s bloke line. None that I know of. It's, it's the Boris in me. Right, um, okay. But yeah, no, no one wants any Boris in me. <laughs> no, absolutely <laughs> right uh, i'm going to ask a serious tennis question before we get very dangerously sidetracked uh calvin what what do you think serena's legacy will be what, what has she changed about the game that that wasn't there in 1996 and is there now uh, it's i mean it's a legacy huge it sort of you know the obvious thing is um is her opening up the game to uh black people uh, black girls in particular I've coached a few black girls who she was by far not only their favourite player the only player that they cared about um, it was yeah stratospheric legacy probably as much as anybody has ever had, ever had on the game certainly from the female side look she's the she's the only she's the only player of the last 40 years that's had a film made about her <laughs> Uh, no, Battle of the Sexes. That's kind of a sort of tangent. Uh, not four years though. They they were before my time. Yeah. Okay. I I still don't know how old you are, and I'm, I'm <laughs> proud of not knowing. Um, one thing I thought when I was trying to think about what her impact on the game has been, because I've been thinking lots about tennis from the perspective of like the general sports viewer recently, rather than just the tennis fan. And one thing I think she's kind of solved or to an extent crushed is the equal prize money kind of argument at grand slams like i know we talk a lot about equal prize money in tennis and like oh men play five sets and they should get more money but like outside of tennis no one really talks about that like everyone's quite in britain at least everyone's quite proud of the fact that men and women and women and get equal prize money and that it's a men and men's and women's event and i think serena's superstardom has kind of quashed any suggestion that that might be a problem. Like, I, I don't know what it's going to be like now she's gone, but I wonder if that might become a little bit more... You know, if we get, like, a Nadal-Djokovic-Wimbledon final next year and the women's final is, like, Pagula against Sasnovich, like, which, let's face it, it isn't beyond the realms of possibility. It's, it's very likely. <laughs> um then it's gonna... a good form by the way <laughs> I did look don't <laughs> honestly please <laughs> but, but like, i mean god re- god love jessica pagula but you know 
She called Simona Halep a pusher, and I won't forgive her for that. Um, anyway, the point is that I think if that were to happen, people would be a bit like, ooh, uh, is it right that she's won two and a half million quid and so is Novak Djokovic? I can, I can just see it kind of creating this. And these are the questions I think that Serena's absence is going to create because even though she wasn't there at the latter end of Wimbledon, she was always there. And it was sort of how a lot of people knew Wimbledon was on because Serena was on the telly or radio or back pages of the newspaper. Um, just before I before I answer that, I just wanted to go back to you when you said then that, and, and I don't know whether I'm speaking out attorney, but that thing about her almost dying when she gave birth. Has that actually been... Is there any evidence that, or is it just that one tweet that she herself put out and then the doctor denied? She she did an interview um, where she talked about, because I read it today again, just for research, where she talked about having, she had a pulmonary embolism during labour um, and then another one, which meant she basically was bed, she couldn't get out of bed for six weeks after giving birth, which some mothers may tell me is not completely uncommon, but I think it was pretty serious. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a blood clot, which if it ends up in the wrong place, is extremely dangerous. Um, and, and by all accounts, it already was in quite a dangerous place. So, I mean, the thing is, my sister went through a traumatic birth and she survived it. And the doctors said, well, realistically, yeah, we always thought you'd pull through. My sister's also a doctor, which is why she got the kind of inside line on it. Um, but they also said probably 30 years ago, you know, that would have been that for both of you. Um, so, yeah. like, it, it, I, the phraseology is is sort of sensationalist, but I don't think you can underestimate that. No, and, we and, and, and I think you also only have to look at Serena before she went away and had a baby and Serena after, and I think there's a marked difference just in all elements of her game that, that I think you can partly attribute to, to that at least, but... Um, Sorry, you were going to talk yeah. about the prize money argument as well. Yeah, um, I don't. Yeah, I, I entirely agree on the point. I'd, I'd, I, the, the one thing I'd sort of slightly caveat it with was, would be going forward that there's not. We don't know if there's a great deal of superstars in the men's game coming over the next five year. I'm actually more sure that there's there's superstars in the women's game than there are in the men's because I think Osaka's a superstar. I think Goff is going to be a superstar. Um, Svontek will continue to be a superstar just on the basis of how good she is. Mm. And there's a few more in there as well. Um, and Radicanu, I mean, you, you know. I, I'm, her, not counting her, I'm not counting her. 13 million Instagram followers, Calvin. Joking aside, I'm, I'm not counting her because she's no more than a superstar. Really, if she wasn't British, she'd be no more than a superstar than... Um, Elena Rabakina. Elena Rabakina, yeah. Um, but you know but, that's another discussion. I'm sure I'll get pelters for that going forward. <laughs> yeah, um, two point four million, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Less than. <laughs> how does that compare to the girl that just won Love Island? Well, I, I can't. I can't even Google. Name. I can't even Google that because I don't know her name. I bet it's less. Um, right. So, but uh, anyway, there'll be people at home like screaming the name Ekin Sue at us, uh, which is the girl who won Love Island with David. Ekin Sue. Yeah. I don't. You tell I, James is looking now. <laughs> no, I know. I'm, I'm yeah. doing my googling stuff that I don't know. Face. Uh, Ekin Sue has 2.7 million followers on Instagram. Ooh, only just then. She won it a week ago, didn't she, George? Calvin, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't be less plugged in on Love Island. I'm afraid. So I've, I have no idea of the timelines. Um, but I know it's um, quite a popular show. To be fair. So. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, but look, listen, she's a tennis player. She's not there to win Instagram followers, so it's no. Uh, where, where was I? Um, yeah, so I, I think I, th- I think we've really the majors. I think we've got past the um, uh, equal prize money thing, haven't we? Now, just uh, it, it sometimes happens on Twitter, but that's not. Uh, very it's good. It's by same people who you know say say things like you know I think Nigel Farage makes a lot of good points. Um, <laughs> Cal, we're not allowed to talk politics. You know? That's true. Politics. We got double pelts. We, we've, get in there. we've had mentions of Boris and Farage already, so we're doing badly <laughs> um, on that front. Yeah, so look, you can't underestimate what, what her and her sister, to be fair, have done for the game from a, a, a pol- political point of view within the game. Um, I, I must admit, I always found... I never really took to Serena. She was the best. She was phenomenal player. She was the best player in the world for a long time. I'd the one thing I'd question about it is, and I I say this a lot, and not many people agree with me, is did she leave the game, the actual game of tennis? And I'm not talking about she definitely opened up the game to a lot of a lot of other people. I'm talking about the actual game, the physical game of tennis. Did does she leave it in a better place than when she came in? And I'm not sure about that. When so, she came uh, into the game, that's a really interesting question. That I, I think, and I think, and that's not really a criticism of of her. She was so good that I think she destroyed any sort of competition or anything. I actually think it's in a better place now than what it was two years ago when you would say that she she really left the game. I suppose. I think this is this is quite an interesting point because I was I was actually racking my own brain earlier about what I thought was like Serena's defining rivalry. And I'll I'll read you the list of rivals that Wikipedia has for Serena. Um, She leads in all of them, by the way. That's the first thing to say. So she's that that kind of speaks to the point that she's beaten everything kind of in front of her, I suppose. So the the rivalries they have are obviously Serena v Venus, which I have to admit, I hated as a rivalry because every match was pretty pants on the whole. It felt like, you know, there were always those rumours about... They're just going to They're rotate it before, win. yeah. <laughs> but it was never great, was it? I mean, in terms of, I, I don't, I can't the odd match. one good match. Can't remember even one good match. Yeah. So that's so that's the first one that comes up. So then you've got Williams Hingis, which Williams led seven six. I was probably a little bit young to truly appreciate any of those matches. Obviously, two big names, but then you've got Williams Capriati. I, I think. Before I kind of carry on, I think this actually shows her longevity, actually, when you kind of go through these names and, like, span these rivalries. So you've then got Henan. That's probably the one I remember being, like, the closest in terms of kind of top quality, which Calvin may may disagree because he'll have a better better memory of all these matches. But I remember growing up watching those matches and be like, oh, you know, these two are seriously bloody good. Um, Azarenka is mentioned which was 18-5 in Serena's favour. And then probably the one that's the defining rivalry that actually was never really a rivalry is Sharapova. And that was, you know, 22. And you'll always remember that famous Wimbledon win of Sharapova's, which should have announced this great rivalry going forward. And while you had the tension and the angst and everything I love in rivalries, as you both know, as the kind of I love people fighting each other sort of thing, but never had, you know... The, the matches or the, the the back and forth wins to go with it. So I, I just thought that was quite interesting, kind of a span of her career, both the longevity, but also who who was the closest player to Serena? Probably Henan would be. I'd, my I'd say in terms of one. in terms of rivalries, it's it's been a weird one because her longevity has just been so overbearing and so powerful on everything. 
she's actually had a lot of good rivalries when the other players were in their prime against her. There were some good yeah. rivalries and close close rivalries for you know for maybe three or four years. Henan, Kleisters, and Williams they were all coin yeah. flips. The problem is Serena was way better than them when she was when they were coming up. So she racked up a load of wins against them then, and then they obviously both retired early. Hmm. Same you would say for um, who else were we mentioning there? There's... Azarenka. I mean, she had a period where she was Azarenka, yeah. Azarenka on a hard yeah. court, yeah. and that they were exactly. great matches. Kvitova was also another one who, in her hmm. prime, in Kvitova's prime, Serena did not like playing her. She was maybe the only player who could out hit her. Um, Hingis was the one that we all thought would be the rivalry, even from when they were both sort of 14, 15, and the rumours started coming about these two girls from America who didn't really play any ITF tournaments. Um, but then by the time, it was strange, because by the time that Serena beat her in the US Open in 99, I think it was, um, Vitz, Hingis was pretty much done as a singles force. Um, and she retired, she, she gave up not long after that. Um, mm. so that, that, that was strange. So it, it, it really does sort of, the thing is about her, how she just last, she just outlasted everybody. But I do think the numbers are a bit skewed in terms of like against the two Belgian girls in particular, who both in their prime were, I don't think they were as good as Serena, but they were definitely, you would make always have made Serena maybe 60, 40 against them. But it was closer than their actual record show because when they were coming up, she was just battered them for about the first seven or eight matches. Uh, Sharapova was no rivalry. Sharapova was Sharapova just wasn't very good, and she was playing in a bad era. But there was no rivalry there. I mean, I was going to say that for me, the Serena Sharapova one is the. But apart from the Williams Williams thing, which was a great story and just amazing and. All right, not always greatest matches, but had something to it. Um, the Serena Sharapova one, I mean, they played four Grand Slam finals against each other, including, George, as you say, the first one. I mean, is your point, George, that they just didn't play enough? No, I think they played They played 22 times or something, which is, like, okay. Mm-hmm. Was it 21? Is that, I think 22. She won two in, like, the first two years of playing each other. I'm pretty sure it was, like... Wimbledon, Wimbledon, Wimbledon final was the first one that she beat her. Wimbledon final, and then I'm sure there's like one more in like 2005 or something right. off the top of my head. I've looked this up so many times over the years, it's somewhere. But then, it, yeah, she didn't win another, lost like 18 or 19 in a row. And I, there's one match, I can't remember which year it was, which is never helpful, but I think it was an Australian Open, possibly. It was just before Sharapova got done for the Meldonium ban, actually. Right. Um, that was brilliant. That was honestly one of the best arena matches i can actually remember in terms of pure high quality but so many of their matches were just total one-sided utter dross i mean the last one that the us open was horrendous wasn't it i I think overall i think she's she's the second best women's player i've seen i think graf was better um and i'd love to have seen them both play each other in their prime um, Where do you rank Sellers in that as well? Because she's always the again, bit of an outlier, a, again, isn't she? it's a tough one. I mean, her record is ludicrous. Uh, a, a record in... There's no other... You can't really compare her. You know, she was just dominant when she was about 17 or whatever she was. And then the terrible incident happened. And she came back and she was still a 
a hell of a player for a couple of years, but she has to almost have an asterisk by her name that yeah. you don't know what would have happened. But even without knowing what would have happened again during that period where she was just completely dominant, she was probably as good as anybody. But but yeah, I think Graf was Graf for me would still be the. I think she'd beat Serena um, more times than Serena would beat her. But again, the length of the career is, you know, it's a quarter of a century almost, isn't it? That's, that's the, yeah, you're right about the longevity. It's just completely insane. Like it just like she's been playing professional tennis for 25 years. Like there are so many different like eras that she has spanned. But she's also, I'd, I'd say, and I've said this about when Boris Becker first came on the scene as well, that he, it, it's it's hard for anyone to to understand how impactful that was because he was just so much bigger than everybody and hit the ball so much harder than everybody and was also really good at tennis and that's the thing with Serena this idea that I want to say somebody say that she just oh she just hits the ball harder than everybody else she does but she's also better than everybody else as well it's it's it, you know she had a better fit she had a better drop shot than anyone else on the tour for a long while. She, she moved faster than everybody else on the tour for a while. It, it was, it was really just that. That was one of the reasons she was so dominant. She was just way physical. And I, I, I'm, I'm aware of. I don't like this sort of racial undertones of saying that that black people are just that. It's, it's their physicality that gets them through. And the, we hear this about football all the time when people mm. refer to Paul Pogba as being such a powerful player. That's not what I'm getting at because, as I said, she was the most skillful and she was the best tennis player as well. But she was also just bigger and stronger than everybody else as well. Yeah. I mean, you can see it in the surf stats, can't you, as well, let's be honest. I mean, yeah. they, they at the time were huge. Yeah, just, just one slight point on who's the greatest women's player of all time. I will just quickly use an argument we used for McEnroe the other week that most singles and doubles combined titles is uh, Martina Navratilova. Do you have her in the conversation at all no she's up there obviously but i, I think you know I, th I think graf was better overall rather was top five i don't think you can count singles and doubles though it's 344 yeah. apparently according to this website i'm on that sounds like she was dominant what? oh you mean like titles right not I... or not grand slams yeah <laughs> well because serena doesn't rank badly in that either by the way you know serena she's not what? top five which is what in overall tour probably titles. is in slams in overall tour titles yeah slams singles and doubles what, combined at least 12 doubles titles if not more yeah um, do we think do we think that she's tainted herself a bit in the last five years by being quite bitter and doing a lot of there's a lot of been a lot of unpleasantness with serena over the last five years hasn't there yeah I, you ha it's a good question to ask i mean the osaka final is the one that stands out, and I, who was she playing when she said, "I'm going to shove this ball down your throat"? I mean, I also she... found the um, the the, res the retirement note a bit weird. How she said she thought it was un, you know, we spoke about this, didn't we? You know, WhatsApp group. I found it a bit strange that she was then saying if she was a male. I, I as I said in the WhatsApp group, I think I probably get what she was aiming at, but she was saying that if she, it's unfair because if she was a male, she wouldn't have to retire at this stage, but. There's no males playing at 42 years old. Yeah. Like, I mean, I that's... guess... I, But she probably thinks in her head, again, and it kind of goes back to 2017 when she, she had her first kid, she probably thinks, well, if I hadn't had to go away and, like, you know, spend a year away from the game, I'd have had maybe that year, and then maybe the next three years wouldn't have been so disrupted. And But, yeah, it was like a clumsy phrase that 
was easy to shoot down. But I, 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 don't, I don't really know why she had to say it. You know, she's 41. There's no shame in retiring at 41. But I, I sort of read it that, like, I wouldn't, I could still be she's playing 40. now. She's 41 next 40, month. 40, right, okay. 41 next um, month. Yeah, I sort of read it that... Yeah, go on, James, sorry. No, 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 you're right. You're, you're right. Like, Roger isn't really playing, and he's that age. For the same reason as well. That Look, their, their bodies have just broken down, haven't they? You know, you can't you can't play like that. And I don't you know, Federer isn't officially retired, but he won't play a proper schedule again. No. You know, we might see him at next I don't think we'll see him at next year's Wimbledon either. I think he'll do David Labour Cup. Um because of uh, the way life is, uh we're recording this on Tuesday night, which is the same night that Serena is playing Emma Raducanu for the first and possibly only time in their respective careers. So you will know the result, we do not. Uh, George, irrespective of the result, is it particularly important for Emma to play Serena? It'll obviously be a big moment for her from a kind of emotional perspective, but what can she get out of it? Um, I mean, I'd be pretty worried if Raducanu doesn't beat her quite comprehensively, to be honest. I think that will be another serious red flag on the Raducanu mass this year. Serena is nowhere near fit enough. She's not playing anywhere near the level she has been before. Someone of Raducanu's quality should put us at the sword. So as you're listening to this after Serena's thumped her 6-1-6-1, I'm sure you'll enjoy that analysis. Um, but no, look, in terms of broader context and reach, it's a match that will get a lot of coverage. You've seen the build-up to it. I mean, what on earth the schedulers are up to in Cincinnati? I never know. I mean, I suppose that people have said that Serena's had a slight injury, which has forced it back, which again, probably... Uh, so just just point. to uh, explain the timeline on this, on Friday they indicated it would be a Monday night match. Yeah, and then on which Sunday... is rare in tennis, they actually well, take yeah. a match and say this yeah. is happening. Then and it's and quite of, bad form. And of course, tickets were like tickets surged in in secondhand pricing, and everyone was buying tickets and like you know moving heaven and earth to get up to Cincinnati for that night. And then on Sunday they said no, it's going to be a Tuesday night match. Um, Marcus Buckland, who lots of you all know from Amazon Prime's uh, coverage, said that it was because of an injury scare for Serena. Um, I haven't seen that reported anywhere else, but, you know, Marcus is well-placed and it may well be the case. Uh, Irrespective, it's bad. Uh, I think if I were a Cincinnati organiser, knowing Serena and the fact that she's about to retire and her physical state because of that... I think I would not have indicated four days in advance that I knew when she was going to play. Like I often, I often criticise tennis authorities for not giving us enough notice for orders of play. But this is why you don't do it, and this is why you don't do it four days in advance. Yes. And and let's be honest, from from a selling tickets point of view, you'd have had enough people gambling on both days. Yeah, like well, they exactly. probably would have made just enough money uh, in a kind of, you know, I'm not saying fans should be forced to buy two sets of tickets to cover a match, but. You know, from their perspective, they didn't really get much out of saying this is happening on Monday and it's kind of backfired. Um, but anyway, going back to it, I mean, look, it's a big match. There's no two ways around it. It's a match that we've actually got some build-up for for a first-round match, which you don't actually get that often in either men's or women's tennis where you're looking at a match and saying, wow, this is two different generations, two... I know Calvin doesn't want to call Raducanu a superstar, but but she is, you know, 2.4 million Instagram followers, like it or not, is more than like Andy Murray. So, you know, by tennis standards, is that it is... More than that Andy is Murray? It, it definitely was before. Um, before okay. All right, go it's, on. it's only more than Andy Murray because when Andy Murray was his prime, Instagram wasn't such a big thing. And she got about 
She must have got two million of those followers in the week following the U.S. Open. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, well, I think I she got. I think she had a decent build at Wimbledon. To be fair. I might. I might be wrong with Mario, but I'm sure she was ahead by about 600k at one point. Anyway, without wanting to get bogged down in the Raducanu Instagram followers, Instagram. But you know, it, it it's kind of nice having this build up to a match, and it's quite unusual because normally you get a big match set later on in the tournament, and you have one day before where you might preview it. But this has been, you know, a good four day build up as it is. Um. I don't necessarily think it'll be the greatest match of all time. I'm not like really looking forward to it in terms of top quality tennis because I don't think Serena's where she needs to be. And I'm not really sure Raducanu is where she <laughs> she needs to be either at the minute. So it'll be it'll be fine. But it'll be one you look back on in fifty years, I'm sure, and think, oh, what a weird intersection in the careers that Serena Williams was still playing when Emma Raducanu was playing. That's just bizarre. It's I, like I, Federer playing Tim Henman and that sort of stuff. It's just weird. As, as I wrote uh, in uh, in the paper today, uh, Emma, Serena Williams was already a five-time Grand Slam champion and reigning world number one when Emma Raducanu was born. That kind of yeah. gives you an idea of the uh, the things being spanned. Um, we will talk about Simone Halep's title uh, in Canada, but... Uh, I've got a couple of reviews that I always promise to read five-star reviews oh, yeah. if you leave them. Uh, and we've had a couple more, so I do want to make sure that I give credit with credit to you. First of all, 80s Villager is back. We're delighted that he's resubmitted, <laughs> or she's resubmitted. I'm, I'm not sure. that delighted with this one, to be fair. Uh, it's entitled Yorkshire Pudding. Bumped back to five stars because these lads should be bigger stars, which I don't think any of us think we should be or want to be. But anyway, I don't listen to Five Live or Talk Sport much anymore, but surely James is as good a presenter as Chappers uh, and George can talk as much rubbish as Robbie Savage and Calvin reps Yorkshire at least as well as sound like Neil Warnock. Uh, if Calvin's not the Neil Warnock of tennis, I don't know who is. So I'm, I'm more than happy with that. I think you've come out best there, to be honest. Chapman's a top <laughs> presenter. Yeah, that's, I'm extremely flattered by that. <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't come out of it well. I know that much. That's <laughs> bottom of the pile, though, surely. He says all I'm good at is talking rubbish. Which, yeah, well, you know, quite. Fair you know, Warnock actually from Yorkshire? I mean, surely this isn't... Is there some conspiracy? From Sheffield, isn't it? Something yeah, right? he's born in Sheffield, yeah. Was yeah. he? Right, okay. I thought he was from, like... Like the Midlands or somewhere. Okay. Um, <laughs> a couple of other ones. Uh, Jerry Nine says, uh, very knowledgeable podcasters. Well done, guys. I learn a lot from you all. You're welcome, Jerry Nine. Please keep listening. Uh, Mini Tennis says, fantastic pod. Really enjoy listening to all three of you. Calvin's reports on the Challenger Tours and how things are behind the scenes are fascinating. Just don't get to hear about those much elsewhere. Uh, banter between George and James is hilarious. I'm not too sure about that. Uh, my constant <laughs> companion on walks and workouts. I hope you're enjoying walking or working out uh, mini tennis keep doing what you're doing we will try and finally uh thank oh. you from uh after 229 whore at at it's a hell of a username uh yeah. says great podcast looking at the various players looking at the performances of various players giving an overview of current and upcoming tournaments and lots of tennis talk i'm not great at knowing tennis terminology maybe you could talk through terms techniques i realize that might be something too beginner for this one it's something we do try and do with calvin's minute tennis um, but I was thinking that maybe during the off-season or over Christmas, we might do a big jargon-busting episode where we go like right down to level one and break down every little bit of the game. That might be quite fun. Um, as always, please do leave us a five-star review if you haven't already. We really like getting them, and it makes us laugh, and it honestly makes us feel better. 
Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to a jam-packed Love Tennis podcast where we're struggling to get everything in this week. We'll do our very best. Uh, as always, I'm James Gray of the iNewspaper and iNews.co.uk. I've got George Belshaw, the tennis writer, who tells me he's back on the exercise bike this week, and I wasn't excited enough when he told me. Uh, and our resident tennis coach, Calvin Beton, who never expects us to be excited about anything because he never is. Uh, the Neil Warnock of tennis, as we might start calling him. Uh, <laughs> speaking of which, if he'd like a Neil Warnock-style rant, Simona Halep won a title this week, back in the top 10 after winning the Rogers Cup. Quite a run as well, by the way. Um, Zhang, Teichman, Goff, Pagula, and then Beatrice Hadamaya in the final, who is one of the players to beat uh, in the world at the moment. Uh, inevitably, Calvin, as I know will displease you, uh, Patrick Ritoglu took some of the praise, at least, from various different quarters this week. Uh, I assume you don't think he deserves it? Uh, no, he doesn't. He's not very good. <laughs> I mean, what what we've talked lots before, inevitably, about the impact of a coach. I mean, how much impact, even if you're making your most optimistic estimates, can any coach, and forget their name on this occasion, have on a player? I always say that I think it's somewhere between best case scenario, a coach can have somewhere between 15 to 20% mm. um, improvement, maybe 10 to 15, 10 to, 10 to 15% maybe, um, which can be quite significant if you, you know, that, that can be quite a big improvement uh, more than it sounds. But I think anything beyond that, um, especially the longer that a, a team as a player and a coach together, I think it's it sort of diminishes and then you're just making fine little improvements mm. and that kind of thing. But, you know, this is where I take Muritoglu. I find it difficult to take because he just keeps taking multiple Grand Slam champions and then they'll carry on winning. And mm. then somebody will go, no one talks about any other coach in the women's game as much as they do about Patrick Muritoglu. <laughs> and and he only see, he seems to pretend he coaches all these other players as well, like Goff. Then coach Goff have anything mm. to do with golf she just trains at his academy because it's a really nice academy mm. same with city pass same with Holger Rune. Uh, i suppose there is an argument to say that and i'm sure you've said it before that a coach at that level isn't about you know changing the forehand grip or messing with this and messing with that but there is an argument to say in this particular case that you know simona Halep was in a pretty bad place six months ago and then patrick came into the team and she got her head sorted out so I suppose you could say that uh, some great coaches are good mates to have on tour and good people to talk to. Yeah, but then how many other people could she have done that? She could have taken one of her mates from home or something or another coach. And, you know, 
I mean, I think all you need to know about Patrick Muratoglu's coaching is that Serena Williams based the argument when she got defaulted. She basically based her argument against it on that she doesn't listen to him anyway. So she <laughs> shouldn't count. So, um, and so yeah, I, listen, right. When you when I'm listen when I'm sort of judging coaches, I look at a couple of things. How much how much improvement are they making beyond the par of what you'd expect to be made? So if a player practice, if a player goes out and practices for three hours, you'd expect that they'd make a, an improvement. Hmm. That's nothing to do with the coach. Just pl- you get better at tennis by playing tennis. Yeah. Um, and on when I hear them speak, are, are they compelling to listen to? Are they saying things that make me think, all oh, right, okay, that's interesting. Or if I watch them coach and do I see things and, and hear them say things and feed back to their players and think, oh, that's, that's interesting. That's good. And I've never heard Patrick Muratoglu say anything that's compelling. I've watched him coach a few times and he's never said anything that I've found remotely interesting. I, think I, he... I, I wouldn't, as I said, and, and on in terms of improvement beyond par, let's give him somebody who's ranked 200 in the world and see how well he does or 500 in the world. Yeah, I'm not going to claim to be in the, the Patrick Moritoglu fan club. But there, but there is something to be said, perhaps in a management role, isn't there, compared to coaching? I always think that's a bit different compared to perhaps football in terms of how we're framing this. Like, There's surely something about getting getting someone in the right headspace. And that, that is a little bit more than just being amazed, I think. You know, there's... But then don't claim to be a coach then. Don't, don't try and say, there's nothing he wants more than to people to think that he's on the court with the racket coming up with tactical interventions that change things that's what he wants people to think i'm i'm sorry but like as i've said before just just not being a dickhead to somebody you don't deserve credit for that just being nice doesn't deserve credit that's just the bare minimum that's the minimum what anybody should bring to the party in his defense in terms of calling himself a manager i'm pretty sure he has launched like a football manager equivalent of tennis that he that he's kind of on the cover of called has tennis he? manager uh yeah, i would like it's a few yeah, years yeah, yeah, old he, has. But he does call There's, himself are, manager in that there are no tennis managers this is like this is how ludicrous <laughs> an individual he is right there are no tennis managers you don't do that you might argue he is one we should maybe call him no he thinks he's a, a coach, manager though. he thinks he's a coach <laughs> I, I think what what you can say uh, uncontroversially is that the word coach does a lot of heavy lifting in tennis, and it's a bit like boxing where people just say trainer, and you know there is a technical term for a trainer because they are specifically someone in the corner during a fight, but in camp, you know you've got all sorts of different people in there, and you can call any of them a trainer, and you know to call one of them a physical trainer is insane because you're a boxer, of course they're a physical trainer. Um, it's the same as, you know, having a team of people, some of whom are kind of performance coaches. I mean, what do you call Mark Lopez, who works with Rafa Nadal? Is, he is called a coach in the same way that you are called a coach with, with Luke Johnson, which I doubt that those two relationships are the same somehow. I mean, I'm not saying Luke isn't Rafa Nadal, um, but, you know, they're different characters, to say the least. I, I don't know if they are, though, James, because we're both probably there on court, different levels. We're both there on court and just offering some feedback on things that you might have seen hmm. the things that you know the player might not have noticed he might be focusing on something else and the coach will will intervene and go you know that throw up's going a bit to the left they may hmm. not know the throw up's going a bit to the left or maybe hit through the ball a bit more you're hitting around the ball just trying to hit through it a little bit more and hmm. that kind of thing 
that's I, I don't think they're necessarily are that different. You're right in that there's a lot of different facets of tennis coaching, and and a lot of it is to be a confidant and that kind of thing, and a lot of it is discussing schedule and and all that kind of thing. Um, I I just can't. I, I look. I can sometimes be a little bit harsh on Muratoglu, but I find it difficult. Like, I don't know what we're even talking about him here. We, we, who, who won the men's last week? Pablo Carreño Busters won the men's. Who's Pablo Carreño Busters coach? It's an absolutely great question to which yeah, I do not because, know the answer. You know, it's like whenever anyone who this is the self promotion that he has. That whenever any of his players win a tournament, and look, I don't want to sound Gary Neville getting a bit. This is Man United here. We're talking about Simona Hallett. She's, you know, she's, a, she's an effing good player. Yeah, you, you know, she's like you're not telling me that nobody when when Patrick Muratoglu took over and everybody nobody thought that she was never win another tournament. For for the record, before George interjects, I do have you on record multiple times saying that you thought the game had moved past Simona Hallett. No, I do. I do think at the top level it has. I don't think that she'll win big titles again. You know, and I get Montreal is fairly big. And full credit to her, but I don't think she's competing at. I don't. I don't think she'll beat one of the one of the the top girls in the latter stages of a slam. Uh, there's two ways to ask this question because this is definitely what he wants, and this is how he's spoken about this before. But on your point about not knowing who coaches are, is there something bad actually about Moritoglu from that perspective, in the sense of he is someone who has a profile, who has his name out there, who draws kind of opinions from people you know he argues that the coach should become a visible figure because it adds a new element to the game which is why he's a big supporter on court coaching you know is that actually a bad thing i don't disagree with him there. About I, I know i entirely agree with him there i think it i think it could be i think that would add, a, add an extra visual element and i'd quite like to hear the coaches talk and that kind of thing i'd quite like to see the coaches be interviewed like they are after football matches mm. um and that kind of thing um i'd I what I don't like the only thing I don't like about Patrick Muratoglu is I don't think he's very good at it, and <laughs> and he thinks he's marvelous at it. Mm. He'd give a good post match interview to be fair. Wouldn't <laughs> it? it would be Mourinho esque. I mean, very <laughs> Mourinho. Not to wet your appetite too much, but off the back of this conversation in the WhatsApp group this week, which we definitely don't have time for in this packed agenda, but I have challenged Calvin to come up with his five favorite active coaches five greatest coaches of all time and the five coaches he's seen kind of from the the underworld of tennis of if you like that he believes are you know top class and why they are so what's think... the underworld of tennis i mean is that think, where, so is that where nicholas saying... basilashvili resides <laughs> <laughs> so, i think we're talking about because you know calvin uh, not to put words in his mouth this week but made the quite interesting point that the some of the best coaches in the world aren't on the tour because you know that's quite a different lifestyle yeah. and takes quite a lot out of you so i was just thought that would be quite an interesting thing to hear see, what makes okay. these coaches so good and i call the it the underworld because heroes the unsung heroes i call it the underworld because we never see them sort of thing and never hear and about them also let's not forget that patrick muratoglu he wouldn't be at these tournaments wouldn't be doing what he's doing if his dad wasn't a billionaire that that's mm. the, the whole thing his dad he, he, he was a tennis fan whose dad was a billionaire who bought him a tennis academy. And then he basically offered money to players to come and train at his beautiful tennis academy, I will say. And he did what he did do, he did employ some very good coaches to work there and some very good other people to work there. But he's not done anything. He's never coached anybody to whatever county level is in France. 
Calvin, do you rate Patrick Moritoglu higher than the influx of super coach we've had? So compared to like an Ivan Lendl or a Boris Becker, do you get do you put him above that in terms no, of the ranking? No, because I think that there's some merit in what those people can do because they've been there. When I know that when look, I know from what I've heard from various players and other coaches and people around the camps that the super coaches don't necessarily say most of what they say isn't any different from what other coaches would say, but the players tend to listen to it more because of who they are, but they might just have something, a nugget that pulls something out and, and it gets something out of the player. Whereas I, I don't really get what Patrick Muratoglu would bring other than, once when my dad invited me to the Baron's house in a mansion, <laughs> this is what happened. Uh, I think we're going to move on before we actively libel anyone, uh, which we're currently not for the record. But, uh, you know, I feel like we probably could if we kept talking about it. Uh, we're going to talk about Samuel Lopez and Cesar Fabregas, Cesar Fabregas, who, of course, I don't need to tell you are Pablo Carreño Busta's coaches. Uh, and he uh, picked up his first Masters 1000 title last week. Uh, I don't know anything about Samuel Lopez and Cesar Fabregas. I'm sorry. Uh, if we're if you're in New York, let's chat. Uh, he beat Hubert Hurkacz in three sets in the, a really good final, actually, I thought. Um, some pretty high-quality tennis. He also beat Dan Evans, Jack Draper, Yannick Sinner, Holger Rune, and Matteo Berrettini en route, which I think might be one of the better thousand-level, certainly American hardcore uh, runs that I've seen in the last couple of years given what we think all those players should be able to do on those surfaces. George, Pablo Carreño Busta, once subject to a very snide and very famous tweet from Ben Rothenberg, um, who I have an enormous amount of respect for, but once tweeted, I think, 2017 US Open semi-finalist Pablo Carreño Busta, brackets, yes, that happened, is through to the third round or whatever. And I think Riley Apelka, potentially, and many other pros got stuck into him. Uh, well, he's now a Masters 1000 champion, so have that, Ben, I suppose. And a, and a two-time US Open semi-finalist and an Olympic Games bronze medal winner. You know, the guy, I think, has proved a lot of people wrong in many respects. Look, he's not the most interesting bloke. He's not both in terms of tennis and and talking. He's His tennis is very similar to his uh, charisma, if you like. It, it, it gets the job done and he'll stick with it but it, it, it's probably never going to fascinate you to such a good degree, but he, he's done bloody well with what he's got. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, th- there are things you look back on in your career as a top level sportsman. And you have to bear in mind in tennis, very few people win grand slams in, in the grand scheme of things. That's less true in the women's game at the minute, but you know, th- there's not that many major winners. That's a really kind of, astonishing triumph but this is a guy who's been in the top 10 which being the top 10 in the world and anything's a fabulous achievement olympic bronze medalist literally means you were the third best in your sport in the olympic cycle which yeah debatable whether that was actually yeah true. i don't think that's what the results say <laughs> but that but that's what the history books will show you know that's something you can't take away from him is a bronze medal at the olympics and you know let's be honest i wouldn't have had him down five years ago as a a two-time Grand Slam semi-finalist, but he's done that, and I wouldn't have had him down as a Masters winner, and he's done that, so he's, he's would, done a great job, really. Would you like to guess, in his seven Wimbledon championships, how many matches he's won at Wimbledon? I imagine it's zero, 
and I don't think he's gone past the first round, would be my guess. <laughs> oh, so you think he has both not won any matches and also not gone past the first round? I wasn't sure if we were including qualifying. <laughs> of course so, I wasn't including qualifying. Of course qualifying. we're not including qualifying. Yeah, I, I don't think he's won a match at Wimbledon. You're absolutely right. He is, he is 0-7 at Wimbledon, which, which as you say, for a guy who's got 50 match wins in Grand Slam tennis... It's quite impressive that none of them have come on grass. I mean, I appreciate it. it's so far from his surface that it's I'd, untrue. I'd love to hear the names there. I mean, I'm sure we can't get that up quickly enough. But well, I'll ask, I'll, interesting... ask, I'll ask Calvin a diverting question, and then I'll get up Pablo Carreño Buster's full list of blokes he's lost to at Wimbledon, because that'd be great. And if you're listening at home, you can try and remember seven of them, if you like. Um, Calvin, Pablo Carreño Buster, I mean, I think you've said that him and Roberto Bessisteragut both have a name that is interchangeable and a game style that's interchangeable but is he better than that is he is he someone who is a bit underrated um no i don't think he's underrated he's a very good player um i don't think he's better than batista or good either they're both pretty similar um and yeah they're both pretty interchangeable they're both excellent tennis players hmm. very very good tennis players the only the only reason i have another difference is batista are supposed to be brilliant at football um, and I, I don't know how good Corinna Buster is at football. Other than that, I wouldn't know anything different about either of them. Yeah, um, really flat. So, uh, Batista Agut, his dad is a massive Villarreal fan, or he was. He passed away a couple of years ago, and I think he used to play for a youth team in Villarreal. And yeah. his dad was the coach, and his dad was also his tennis coach. And I think it like absolutely broke his heart when eventually he was like, "I am better at tennis. I think I should do this." But apparently he is, when I ask anybody who, because I think, you know, the guys, tennis players, they do play a little bit of football. Mm. Whenever you ask them who the best football player is, every one of them says it's Batista Regat. Yeah. Which I, I think actually, if you watch him play, you kind of believe, like, he looks like he'd be that kind of skillful, like, number 10, you know, kind of knocking the ball in and he out. He does, but I, I once played with, I once randomly happened in a five-a-side match with a current top, 20-ish player who I was convinced would be brilliant at football and he was terrible. <laughs> I mean, I can't already, believe you're not giving us a name. I already here. know who this is. And have I told you before? No, I've just, I've, I've figured it All out. Right, have a guess. I'll tell you. Have a guess. Who do you think it is? Dan Evans. No. Oh, okay. Top 20. That's what put well, me Well, I mean, Evo's like 21 in the world at the moment or something. And, uh, George? Who, well, I can't believe you think Norrie would be good at football because he's not. He doesn't look good at football. He's not British. Let's talk about it's not British. Okay. Teams meant to be pretty decent. He's not top twenty there. Well, just George. He's not top twenty. He hasn't been for about two years. He is years. in my mind. Yeah, he's never going to be out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think who you would think would be good, but is I, I don't think there's many people in the top twenty I'd back to be good at football at all. I'm really? going to have. Uh, because most uh, people who are good at sport tend to be good at all sports. Okay, I've got I've got two ideas, and I'll, I'll talk you through before you tell me if I'm right or wrong. One is Matteo Berrettini because he's gorgeous and just looks like he'd be good at everything. And the other one is Alex de Manure, who I, I, is you're more likely to have ended up in a five-a-side game with. Yeah, I'm it's thinking neither of those. Uh, Dimitrov. Have you played a five-a-side with Dimitrov? No. He sounds like he might play five-a-side. Better check that this guy's still in the top 20. <laughs> yeah, that, could, that could be throwing this. <laughs> I think he is. But, um, I think he is, but let me check. This is really... Uh, this. I mean... 
I'm trying to think who you think is good as well. He's just oh, really no, he's not, but he's not far outside the top twenty. Is it Gail Monfils? Yeah, it's Gail Monfils. Ah, and he's rubbish at football. Yeah, I just thought he'd be brilliant, and he was just like couldn't control the ball so, or anything. Apparently, weirdly, apparently he's like an elite level basketball player. Like even Kyrgios thinks he's pretty darn good, um, and obviously Kyrgios played like representational level until he was seventeen or something. Um, but and he yeah. plays some real dogs as well. And he you? plays <laughs> some real dogs. Uh, right, let's move on. We've talked more about Pavel Lukaku than I was expecting. Um, Carlos Alcaraz, uh, interestingly, coming out and saying that he felt the pressure for the first time of, of playing, and he um, lost Tommy Paul in the first in his first round, the second round uh, of the uh, Canadian Open, a match that was so one sided that I turned it off because it was over. Because <laughs> Carlos Alcaraz was a set and four love up, he lost it seven six six seven six three. Uh, sorry, six seven seven six six three. Uh, I mean, George, look, we've we've always talked about Alcaraz that he just walks us through pressure and walks through power. I mean, Tommy Paul, look, take nothing away from him; he's playing quite well and he's quite a tricky customer. But it's not a match you'd expect him to lose, especially from that situation. No, um, I do think Tommy Paul is a good player, and I think I've seen him play quite a few matches where he plays quite far above his ranking. So it, it's certainly not on paper the worst loss, but you're right. I mean, the context of it is weird, and I sort of alluded to this the other week. It does feel a little bit like the gloss is coming off Alcaraz slightly in the last few months, um, and that that. That may just prove to be a victim of his own success, but it but it is quite interesting that a common fe- feature of the men's game over the last five years has been someone coming on the scene, 18, 19, looking untouchable for a cut, or you know, really looking like they're going to raise the bar. I'm thinking Zverev, I'm thinking um, Sinner, I'm thinking. Uh, who else? Ogier Aliassime. Right. Shapovalov. You know, the, there are guys who have kind of had that big breakthrough grin, had that big breakout, I suppose. And none had done it as well as Alcaraz. Yeah, I hesitate. You know, I would say that. Maybe Zverev's the other one who's really, you know, in terms of like big titles, made that breakthrough earlier than Alcaraz. Sissipas as well, you can put in this category. And then they just hit this point where it seems to to not go right. And it, it, it it's interesting him talking about the pressure because it, it must be a mental thing half the time. There's the two flip sides of people work you out a little bit. They know who you are. They know what your game is about and they get to you. But there is that angle of, oh, crap, I'm beating everyone at the minute. The pressure's on me. And people raise your game when you're expected to win. But also they you internalise that feeling that, I should win this match. And when you aren't winning this match or when things start to go against you, that that suddenly is a, a kind of fresh challenge. So, I, I mean, I think it's one to watch with him at the minute, just how he's going to turn this around. I think, you know, without over-dramatising it, the bloke's world number four and he's only 19. So let, let's cut him some slack. But this was a bit of an odd, odd moment for this to happen, really, I think. And to kind of come out on Twitter and be like, oh, I felt the pressure. It's just, you know, as you say, a strange moment. I suppose, you know, we're, we're probably coming around to a portion of the tour where, you know, he, he went and played that, that post-Wimbledon, like, clay court swing, which is obviously bloody stupid. 
but he got to two finals and, and lost them both. And then, like, he potentially came into Canada feeling a bit undercooked on hard. Like, he played a final on the 31st of July in his Canadian Open first round match the 10th of August. Like, I do wonder if there's an element of either being underprepared on the surface or just feeling a bit jaded or, you know, there could be a lot of things at, at play there. Um, anyway, he's playing Mackenzie McDonald in the uh, in the Cincinnati Masters, which I feel like might be quite a good way to find your rhythm again, with the greatest respect. He's also playing doubles with Pablo Carreño Busta against uh, Roger Vassalin and Santiago Gonzalez, your friend and mine, um, who, of course, Calvin coached against at Wimbledon. Uh, right. I've got some breaking news that I don't think we're going to need to discuss because it's literally just happened, but I wanted to register that Coco Goff has just retired from her match in Cincinnati. Uh, she was 5-3 up against Marie Buzkova and then rolled her ankle. Uh, she then lost five games in a row. She's been in tears on and off during the match uh, and eventually retired 7-5, uh, 1-love down. Um, it has literally happened about 10 or 15 minutes ago, so I don't know any more than that, but quite a serious concern for someone who, for whom... Obviously, the US Open is absolutely massive and starts in less than two weeks' time. Uh, worrying, to say the least. More, more as we have it, and not that we'll have any before the end of the podcast, I fear. But, um, yeah, do keep an eye on that. Uh, moving on swiftly, uh, big result in America last week for Jack Draper, who beat Stefanos Tsitsipas. Uh, he's now on the edge of the top 50. It, it's a pretty massive result for him, Calvin, obviously. You know, beating a, a guy in the top 10, um, on a surface where he should be pretty handy, and I know Tsitsipas didn't play well, but irrespective of that, it, it moves him kind of up in the in the British pecking order as well, where people will start to sit up and take notice in in quite a big way. I think I'm right in saying he's British number four now because he's still behind Andy Murray. Do you think that players kind of pay attention to to that? For example, I was looking at uh, the doubles rankings the other day, and I think I think Henry and Jules are like seven and eight. In, in Britain, and one of them ahead of them is Ken Skupski, who's retired, so effectively six and seven. Like, do, do you think players care where they're ranked in terms of the rest of their countrymen, or, or are they just so bubbled? I think it's not necessarily that they care, but there's certain landmarks that I think um, like that top ten in the country is a mm. nice one. But I don't think that Jack, I mean, Jack's sights will be set much higher than British number one, mm. I would <laughs> think, unless... Um, but that is a pretty high ranking at the minute, to be fair. It is, yeah. Generally, you know, I was about to say that, that it's, you know, British number one is is bigger than what it used to be. But um, parents and grandparents love it. Um, <laughs> and then I was looking the other day, actually, that if you take um, Ken Skupski and Doming Lot out, who are both retired now, yeah. then uh, Luke and Henry are both in the top 10 in Britain. Wow. Doubles. Serious. Um, uh, yes, Jack Draper up to 54 in the world, uh, or at least he will be next week. Uh, George? When you say he's setting his sights higher, Calvin, what what do you think is a realistic sight for him? Is this is this guy a world number one potential? Uh, look, he's just beaten Sissipas, who we think is going to win Grand Slams. He, on, do we think that now? Sorry? Uh, do we uh, think that now? I, I'm wobbling on that, I have to yeah, say. Yeah, I am. I've been, I have been for a while, but... I'm wobbling on so many of them. Somebody's got to win. I keep saying, I don't think Zverev's going to win one. I don't, don't think Team's going to win any more. I don't think Sitsipas is going to win one. I don't think Felix is going to win one. 
Um, somebody's Alcaraz gonna, is getting Al- 46. Alcaraz can't just win them all. Um, so somebody's going to have to win them. So, um, yeah, Jack, Jack will be, you know, definitely he'll have his sights on top 10. Could do you think, Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, is he a guy who can win a Grand Slam title when, you know, the guys who keep hogging them stop? You've, you've got to see how it settles, haven't you? I think that's the thing. Um, he hasn't had the same path as um, as Alcaraz, who you would say, I'm certain that Alcaraz is going to win one. Mm. I'd be shocked if Alcaraz doesn't win a Grand Slam. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if, if Jack does or doesn't, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I think he can, yeah. I think the answer is, yeah, I think he can win slams. Mm. Be interesting to see. Uh, and, of course, as always... You've got to tennis. think it's one of those, hasn't it? You've got to look at it in terms of, like, what is his actual ranking now? Um, like what would his real term ranking be now? Where would we put him in a? I, th- I honestly think he's probably top twenty. I mean, I suppose if you look at just apart from that city pass result, who he's played. Um, I mean, he beat Monfils, but Monfils retired injured. Um, he like got beaten reasonably well by Pablo Carreño Booster. Uh, First, that was a breaker, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, lost fairly convincingly to Rublev in that Washington match. I mean, yeah, it's. I would maybe go closer to like thirty-five, maybe in terms of like if he got drawn against a seed at the U.S. Open, which is not that unlikely because he's direct entry but not seeded. I uh, I wouldn't probably have him as favorite against really any of them. Maybe like Cherenzolo. Although... There's a few in there, you know, that I wouldn't mind seeing him against. Mm. You know, like I'd, like Mazzetti. Uh, Mazzetti won't be seeded, will he? He's 33 at the minute. Is he? Uh, he's, oh, he's one out. He's one yeah. out from being seeded. Um, Van der Sandschlub. Yeah. Apelka. Yeah. What, would you definitely say Shapovalov's beating him now? Yeah, he doesn't have the lefty advantage against Shapovalov. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Uh, we've got to move on because we, we've got to do some quick hits, um, some of which are just going to be acknowledgements and some of which are going to be discussion points. Um, Nick Kyrgios beat Daniil Medvedev, which feels like it deserves a podcast on its own. Um, first time since Indian Wells 1999 that all th- all three top all top three seeds lost their opening matches at a Masters event. Maybe there's something in the water. Um, Medvedev was also taunted by a fan who called him loser as he walked out of the stadium. He stopped and um, inquired as to whether the man wanted to repeat that accusation, at which point apparently it became clear that he didn't speak a huge amount of English, but he did know the word loser. Um, Kyrgios then running out of steam mentally and physically, according to George Belshaw, who writes my notes for me. I can only assume that he is right. Um, In a sentence, have you changed your opinion about Nick Kyrgios' chances at the US Open? Calvin. Uh, since when? Since before he beat Medvedev. Oh, um, yeah, I'll give him more chance now. George. Yeah, I think it's a good result. Um, I think Medvedev's the guy to beat. Really, assuming <clears throat> Novak's not going to be there, which I know there's some scope for potentially changing. Um, whether he can do it best of five, hang in there with Medvedev. We'll see. He's got to get through seven matches anyway. That's going to be the bigger problem. But yeah, 
look, the guy's playing really well this year and he's, he's got to be viewed as a contender, really. Dan Evans got to the semi-finals. He also reached the doubles final uh, along with uh, Piers. They lost to Wes Kulhoff and Neil Skupski, one of the best pairs in the world, no shame in that. Uh, big week for him, again, in the singles and the doubles. Any sense in a sentence that the US Open is a last hurrah in terms of having a serious chance of going deep in a major, George Belshaw. <laughs> um, I, I do think there's a sense with Dan that if it's going to happen from a major, I don't mean winning the, the thing, but I mean like a run to the quarterfinals. I think that has to happen within the next 18 months. And, you know, I've been a bit disappointed by his performances at the majors over the last few years. I know Calvin will always say there are matches he's just not going to match up that well in, but there have been matches he's had at majors that he just hasn't turned up for basically one way or another. Um, and they've been poor results. So yeah, I, I'll stick with my, my notes question and say, I, I think this is quite a big tournament for him. It's the one I think he can do the best at and he has done the best at in the past. Um, who knows? It's going to be pretty open this tournament, I think. So he's got as good a chance as anyone. Calvin, you know him quite well. Do you think he'll be putting that kind of pressure on himself that, you know, come on, Dan, you've got to do this now? Yeah, I know he really wants to go deep into a major. I think US Open is probably his best chance. Um, he's, he doesn't, he's not getting much luck, though. Like, you know, he's like with that, he did great last week. And then I'd seen this week he's drawn Sitsi Pass. If he wins tonight, he plays Sitsi Pass, which isn't a great matchup for Evo. Mm. Um, you know, you want to get on runs. You want to, Built some form, but strange is that career high now, isn't it? Yeah, just just on the edge of. Uh, or maybe that's, equal, yeah. Seems so so strange. He's had like he's basically done nothing all year, and then he's <laughs> career high. It just sums up what these tournaments do for you in terms of rankings, yeah. isn't it? I mean, they're just so much bigger than other events. And not defending yeah. much for the rest of the year, actually, is he? Mm. Maybe a third he's round. Been in quite the... bad form, really, since this yeah. time last year. In many ways. Well, if not you think bad, that he, bad, but... he had that great clay court swing, you know, and we were all like, "Oh my god, maybe Evers an all court player." You know, he beat, jo- <laughs> beat Djokovic in Monte Carlo. Um, that yeah. was last year, though. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, yeah. you go back 18 months and then all of us, you know, it's not been what we thought. Uh, he's defending fourth round points at the US Open, which is obviously reasonably punchy. Right, yeah. Um, but, you know, he will be seeded and he will be in the penultimate bracket of seeds, which will help him a bit as well because um, he's 23, not 25, which is a pretty massive distinction when you look at how the draws work. Um, I'm going to reserve my opinion. Uh, Andy Murray's playing Cam Norrie on Wednesday night. Uh, you've got a sentence to predict that match, Calvin. Murray might win it. Murray has won their two most competitive meetings, uh, one in Beijing in three sets, and then in Battle of the Brits in 2020, he beat him as well. I think Murray, um, he, he, he likes to play players who he's beaten before because he, he thinks he's got the blueprint then to beat them and he puts a lot on that kind of thing hmm. George I'll go for Norrie I've not been that impressed with Andy recently so I think he, he's he's the better player at the moment Norrie so I'll, I'll go for him I think three hours on court against Stan as well on what was quite a draining match like I don't know I, I, I just don't know if he's going to be able to he said he said I need to be the guy who's playing shorter points and play more aggressively and as we've discussed so many times before <laughs> He says that and then goes out and tries to grind. And it, it it's just not going to work against Cam Norrie, who is like younger, fitter, stronger and in the form of his life. 
Um, we've barely mentioned Naomi Osaka, who lost today to Zhang Shui. Uh, stat cut to Ben Rothenberg. This is the first time she's lost her opening match at back-to-back tournaments since Canada and Cincinnati in 2018. She then won the next event, the US Open. Uh, uh, a score out of 10 from each of you. How likely is it that she will repeat that feat at this very moment? George? Two. Calvin? Four. Oh, it's a larger number. Uh, and finally, we were going to talk about Iga Shontek, but we've got so little time to do so. All we can do is mention that she lost to Beatrice Haddad Meyer. There's no shame in that. Uh, are we going to be worried? Three losses in six after 37 in a row. Um, reversion to the mean, you might say, or perhaps the end of a Shontek era. Who knows? We'll try and discuss <laughs> it more next week because clearly we haven't got time to do it here. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will, of course, be back next week, and I hope you will be too. Podcast Network.